0: Welcome to the 2021 Tech Congress series. My name is Caitlin, and this series will follow our newest class of Congressional Innovation Fellows as they make their way to Congress. We'll keep in touch with them throughout the year and follow up with them at the end of the fellowship to explore the highs, the lows, the surprises, and the evolution of their experience. A little bit of background. Tech Congress was created after our founder, Travis Moore, saw the lack of technical expertise while working as a staffer in Congress. The fellows receive a two-week intensive training in politics and policy, and then talk to prospective offices and choose a placement in a congressional office that aligns with their skill set and politics. They then spend 12 months on the Hill serving as tech policy advisors. Today, we'll be interviewing Hakan Olu, a 2021 Congressional Innovation Fellow. Hakan has worked at Google as a manager and technical lead. He is the co-founder of Thorny Games, a publishing company that explores the intersection of language, culture, and identity through play. Hakan will be working in Senator Ben Ray Lujan's office during his fellowship year. How are you doing, Hakan?
1: i great. Thanks for having me, Caitlin.
0: Yeah, of course. So I want to start off asking a bit about where you grew up and how did that influence your interest in tech?
1: Absolutely. So my background and where I grew up is a little all over the place even before I existed, I guess, my mom is American and my dad's Turkish. And so they met in the United States, uh, actually as part of a equestrian program. They were both competitive horse riders and uh, they met, fell in love, and uh, I was born shortly after. I spent the first two years of my life in the U.S. and then I went to Istanbul, where uh, I spent the next uh, 11 or so years And this was right when dial-up internet was becoming a thing towards the end of my tenure in Istanbul. I remember we got the internet maybe a year before we left. We left in 99. And that was a point where I remember like staying up all night using the little encyclopedia program uh, that came with our computer. We got one of those, like, how things work. If you remember those, those old books with, like, the woolly mammoth, we got one of the, like, interactive ones on the computer, and it's just like changed everything for me it was such a revelatory experience and then i came to the united states i moved to hilton Head, as kind of a resort town in south carolina which uh, was pretty challenging for an eighth grader you know just to come over quite a large distance from a very different background and uh so that was a time where i also felt a lot of isolation coming to south carolina directly from turkey And the internet and being online was really where I was able to find a lot of community uh, and stuff that I was interested in. It's what really helped me establish a connection to the world, find things that I enjoyed and felt passionately about. And I think at that point, I knew that this was going to be a huge part of my generation's legacy to the world, how we develop it out and what we make of this incredible new tool.
0: Yeah, it seems like something in technology and computer science was always a part of your DNA and seemed like something you were really passionate about from the get-go. What made you decide on cryptography specifically? I know you got your PhD in cryptography from UCLA. What made you interested in pursuing a PhD in this area particularly?
1: Well, it's interesting actually because the first thing that I started studying academically, and really this is points to having a good teacher who can really get you passionate about a subject more than anything else, was mathematics instead of computer science. I, when I went to college, I knew I was going to major in math from like the first day, and I changed what I was going to minor in or possibly double major in like seven times. And uh, what really drew me to math though wasn't the applied part, it wasn't like what could actually be built with it. Uh, It was how beautiful it was. I found an incredible amount of attraction in mathematics itself as a concept and how it could help me get this glance into the universe in a way that was deeply meaningful. And cryptography and the theory of communication really brought out that beauty in a more applied setting too. What are the theoretical limitations on what we can communicate with each other? How can we try to hide information and what are the bounds on what we can actually get across securely was really interesting. And I was fortunate enough to have a great teacher uh, in undergraduate as well, who was a cryptographer, and he taught a very challenging class on the subject. And uh, really, I was hooked from that point on. I started publishing and writing papers uh, in crypto back in undergrad and then really kept on with it uh, all through my grad school career.
0: It's really fascinating. And cryptography is such an relevant and such an interesting field, especially right now. What made you decide to go all the way and pursue a PhD? I know that's pretty common in cryptography, but, you know, did you ever consider an academic career or was it you always knew that you wanted to go towards the applicable private sector or policy side of things?
1: Oh, definitely, when I went to graduate school, I was going to be a professor was the first thing that I thought of. And then uh, the the reason really why I ended up not doing it, it's a little bit more um, kind of down to earth and mundane than uh, one might think. Tenure and tenure track positions in academia are incredibly hard to get, and I think at some point in my third or fourth year of graduate school, I came to a realization, that if I got a tenure track position in what I was working on, in like the middle of nowhere in a state I had never heard of, right, small town in a state I had never heard of, had no desire to live in, uh, I would take it because tenure track positions were that hard. And I just kind of made this evaluation of like what that meant for my personal happiness at that point. Uh, you know, if you don't like where you live, can't find a connection there, that's going to really govern your happiness more than I think what you're specifically working on. And that was the thing that drove me, honestly, out of academia, uh, the job prospects. At that point, I still had the decision to make about whether or not I would go into government work or whether or not I would go into private sector after getting my degree. And uh, so I applied to both. And honestly, this is also, all my answers are very mundane to your questions. But the reason why I went into the private sector was because my partner. We were together at that point. So we had met while I was in graduate school. And she was already working at Facebook. She was in Silicon Valley. And I was fortunate enough to get a job at Google without having ever had an internship in software engineering and never having been paid for a line of code in my life before. We can talk about specifically how that happened at some point. But uh, I went because I thought it was a chance to be a part of something really new uh, and really exciting. Remember, this was back in 2000. I think I started in 2013, something like that. And the vibe around big tech was also very different than how we thought about it, how we thought about its role in the world. It was really a place for idealistic young people to go to. And that's what drew me in and how I ended up there.
0: Yeah, not a bad reason to join Google. Can you talk a little bit about, one, how you got into Google without having a background in software engineering, and two, what you did at Google and how that influenced all your other post-career pursuits?
1: Sure yeah, the the story about how I actually got a full-time offer at Google was kind of funny because I got a full-time job at Google by being denied an internship at Google, uh, which I'll explain in a second. So what happened was, you know I was going into like my last year of well, I was going to my fourth year of graduate school, which normally wouldn't be your last year, but uh, I had also done a year of in research so I could kind of argue that I had spent five years and that I was ready to graduate. but uh, I was applying for a internship. For the summer after my fourth year and uh, I did my internship interviews and the recruiter who I was working with said "Yep, you did very well in your interviews and then they put me into a pool of uh, other prospective interns and they said okay the teams will now pick amongst this pool and it's not a guarantee of an offer yet but should be a pretty good chance uh, because like you've gotten through the hiring process basically and uh, no team picks me Uh, I think they saw that I was in the math program. They saw I didn't have a lot of coding experience and no team was willing to take me on for a three month internship, basically. And so I went back to my recruiter and I was like, hey, look, you told me I did really well on my interviews and no one's picking me. My advisors have said that I can probably graduate at the end of this year. Could I change my application to a full time application? And she said, sure. Yeah, you did really well in your interviews. So we can count those as kind of your phone interviews. We just would have you come on site to do your on-site interviews. And if those go well, uh, we'll take you on. And uh, I said, cool. And so I uh, flew up. I spent a number of months uh, kind of preparing very diligently for what a Google Whiteboard interview would look like. And I flew up and uh, did well on my interviews. And they gave me an offer. And, uh, that's how I got a job at Google, uh, by being denied an internship at Google.
0: It's such a great story. And I think, you know, even for a college student like myself, that's really inspirational to hear because I've been rejected for so many things. A lot of young people have been rejected from many, many things. And, you know, there's always a different opportunity that comes through failure. So I love how that story highlights that. Oh um, yeah.
1: And to add on to that real quick, yeah. um, that's one thing that I always found myself talking to kids about at career fairs is I think that when you're in college, especially you you get a lot of exposure to the people who follow the expected path a lot, right? You see the people who get the internships, the internships that lead to the jobs and so on and so forth a thousand times. But the reality is there's a lot of people who find different ways into places. And, uh, you know, whenever I would talk about my story about getting hired without having done an internship, not having a computer science degree, having a math degree, people are always surprised because I would do hiring events for Google. And, uh, you know, if there's anything that if there's any uh, young folks, college folks, stuff like that who are listening in, I just really recommend pursuing what you find exciting and that you'll do well at rather than really trying to optimize significant life choices for Uh, Advancement because it seems to be the right path, because a lot of times that can just lead you into positions where you're not happy, where you're doing things because you think you need to be doing them, rather than because you're excited by it. And in the long term, it's not going to be good for you, probably.
0: That's a great segue into the job that you had post-Google. I know that you co-founded Thorny Games, a gaming company, after you left Google. Can you talk about why you decided to do that and what exactly you worked on while at 30 Games?
1: Yeah, so 30 Games is the company that I founded with my partner, Catherine. And I did not have a uh, large decision-making process when I decided to make the company. Uh, it kind of happened because uh, the story is me and my partner. We discovered this type of games, these indie role-playing games, are... So Games kind of in the vein of uh, Dungeons and Dragons or other tabletop role playing games. So, these are all games that you would play around the table and you're telling a story together, but that are not about the topics you'd usually think about when you're thinking about these types of games. You know, in Dungeons and Dragons, you think of like a group of adventurers who have come together and they're going to kill the monsters and take the money and go back to town and, you know, buy better stuff to kill bigger monsters with. And there's a really rich, vibrant world of games that are exploring more intimate stories that are exploring more interesting, uh, emotional and creative places. And uh, we were really inspired by these games. And we decided, well, I don't even know if you would say decide but we had an idea for one. Um, I remember um, my partner presenting me with the idea while we were waiting for an airplane in an airport. Uh, And it was about telling the story of a community through how their language changes over time. And uh, after we had that initial idea of coming with the first draft for the game was fairly easy. And we took it to a convention and it got a lot of positive reception at that convention. Based on that reception, you know, we kind of joined the community. We got to know folks and uh, we kickstarted it. So we put up on Kickstarter. We had asked for, I forget how much exactly but in the single digit thousands or $3,000 or $5,000, I wanna say just enough to like help us print the books. And it raised about $190,000 instead. uh, So it it, got much more popular than we thought it would. And this was while I was still working at Google. And at that point we had this project that was suddenly became much bigger than we thought it was going to be. And uh, this was also right after the 2016 election, frankly where I was having a lot of second thoughts about what I was doing on a daily basis. Uh, you know, that idealism that I had first joined tech with started to wane, right? Uh, I think the story got a lot more complicated after 2016. And that's when I decided that I was going to leave. I would later rejoin Google for some amount of time during COVID. Uh, so it's not like I had written off Google completely or like written off big tech completely, but it was a time for me to kind of take a break and make a change. And so I decided to go and work on Thorny Games full-time. During that time, uh, we published two games, worked with the Nicaraguan Sign Language Foundation with one of our games, uh, did a number of academic collaborations with uh, universities, developing games for uh, specific types of uh, language recovery, and generally had a a really interesting time. So that was kind of my decision-making process on deciding to start the company, or not deciding to start the company, but starting the company, making our games, and then what kind of fell out of that?
0: That's a great story, and I cannot believe you guys raised almost two hundred thousand dollars. That's really, that's really incredible. So, given your such a diverse range of experiences, you know, you were potentially an academic, but did said not to. You worked at Google, you founded your own games company. What made you make want to make the shift to Tech Congress and working in the policy space?
1: Well, during my time at 30 Games, one of the things that was really useful was I got to make my own schedule, right? Because it was was my company, me and my partner's company. So it was a nice opportunity for me to become more politically active. I was able to join in uh, a number of races in terms of volunteering and organizing for 2018 and 2020. And that really felt right to me at that point in time. It felt like I was working on something that would affect Potentially everyone, right? Whereas my games were getting out to on the order of thousands of people, uh, this was a chance to have much bigger impact and help a lot more folks. And that's really what inspired me to try to come to the Hill and try to find other ways to become active.
0: Really happy to have you here. You're going to have such a good time on the Hill. I know it. What are you excited about in terms of your upcoming fellowship year? What problems or issues do you want to work on and Maybe what's something that you're nervous about? <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, well, nervous about all the things, of course. It's it's very intimidating, but it's very exciting to be able to uh, jump in and try to work on them. The big thing that I feel passionately about is increasing access to tech to everyone and uh, make sure that the benefits that we're currently experiencing and are about to experience through AI are distributed across all stratas, right? I think there's a very natural tendency, especially in the United States, uh, especially over the last 50 years, for when there's an advancement, when there's a windfall of technology, power of resources, that it falls into fewer and fewer hands. And if we're going to fight that, we need to make sure that we're really fighting it, that we know it's a problem and that we are going to put concentrated effort into making sure that this tendency is countered in a way that the benefits are spread out to more and more people. And that's really what drives me. This, I think, gets into a whole bunch of different issue areas, right? In terms of increasing access to tech, uh, broadband, and fighting the digital divide is obviously like a huge, huge issue point. But also all the stuff around AI and Section 230 and privacy reform, all of these play into the inherent problem of the concentration of power uh, under the economic and political system in the United States, and I hope to be able to make sure that happens in the way that we all want it to and in a way that's fundamentally democratic, more specifically, what I'm nervous about other than just the kind of joke answer of everything, I guess is um, you know whether or not I'll be able to translate what I'm good at into effective policy, right? Because effective policy has a lot of factors that go into it other than just, well, what's the right thing in the world, right? What should be, what what should the states that we all want to be in the world be? Uh, There are political considerations. There are considerations of how you ramp up. There's considerations on how it actually gets implemented, right? It's not just seeing an end result and just making a law that says this is the way the world needs to be, there's actually understanding how that comes to pass. And uh, being able to effectively understand that policymaking process, I think is the thing that I'm most, that is going to be the biggest challenge of my fellowship. As from an outside perspective, it's easy to say how you want the world to be, but harder to say how you get there and yeah, also the thing that I'm most excited to learn more about
0: and kind of to start uh, working on. You're gonna have a great time on the Hill and I'm sure you're gonna learn everything within the next month or so and you'll pick it up really quickly. So last question is a bit of a get to know you type of question. What was the best experience you've had during quarantine?
1: My, my best experience was definitely uh, an opportunity that I started trying to pursue before quarantine. Uh, that I finally got to do during quarantine, and also that I sadly had to give up when I moved to d c. So I'm greatly trying to re-engage that part of my life. But I started volunteering at the Oakland Zoo as an animal care volunteer, which meant you know I got to help uh, the keepers kind of with the feeding of animals, clean up, training, stuff like that on a regular basis. Uh, I was doing it once a week in Oakland during quarantine and I started while the zoo was closed for quarantine. So it was really interesting like being in the zoo when there weren't any visitors and then seeing the visitors start coming again. Mm-hmm. But there I got to work with the cotton-top tamarins which are probably my favorites, um, but the Siamang apes, uh, Malaysian sun bears, emu, a couple parrots uh, and all the flamingos which I desperately, desperately miss. And I'm really hoping the National Zoo opens up volunteer applications again, which I have emailed them a couple times about by now. Um, but I had to point to one experience during quarantine as being my favorite it was definitely getting a chance to work with the animals of the zoo.
0: That's adorable. And you definitely have to email the National Zoo again because they're amazing um, and it's a great zoo. But yeah, thank you so much, Hakan, for being here. We really appreciate you taking the time.
1: It was great talking to you, Caitlin. And I'm looking forward to checking in as as the fellowship goes on, too.
0: Awesome. So that's it for now. Follow our Twitter at Congress Fellows to keep up with Hakan's ventures throughout the fellowship. A special thank you to New America's Open Technology Institute, Tech Congress founder Travis Moore, Senior Advisor Brooke Hunter, and the New America production team for their continued support.